Hello, this is Robert Picardo, the holographic doctor from Star Trek Voyager and Commander Woolsey from Stargate Atlantis. If I only get in Star Wars someday, I will have made the trifecta. And you're listening to Neil Before Pod, because you are smart. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Welcome to a vengeful edition of Neil Before Pod. The 4th of June 1982 saw the US release of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, with the UK release following shortly after on 16th of July. That makes the film 35 years old, so we decided to have a chat about it to mark the occasion. We may be a little late to the party, but we're here. Many say that this film is the finest example of Star Trek in existence, and many have never heard of it. So, we're here to talk about why we love it, because we have heard of it. Naturally, I can't do this alone, so it's time to beam in the old bridge crew. Welcome aboard, guys. We have Nick, hopefully in one piece. Hi there. And Sandy, hopefully also in at least one piece. Yes, yes, Excellent. yes, yes. Hang on, hang on. Uniform, check. Feet, check. One, two, three. Everything's there. Yep, cool. Cool. I, I'd seconds. like to add I'm not in uniform, guys. Okay. No, well, you, yeah, well, there you go. You just destroyed the illusion. Oh, well, okay. I do have to the Academy t-shirt on, though, so... <laughs> <laughs> I have a T-shirt that's not Star Trek on, so it's it's kind of yeah. I have a Justice League T-shirt on. <laughs> Here we are down to the the Neil Before Pod Fashion Parade. Hey. Yeah. Anyway, so almost thirty five years ago, there was a, a, a film that came out. You know that people kind of like uh, a Star Trek film. I think um, the second one in a long series of films. Pee-wee uh, goes to space. <laughs> Star Trek 2 Electric Boogaloo oh, See I've always wanted to see that <laughs> yeah. um, you, you told me we were going we to be talking about fashion Not not, not, uh, not Star Trek Well Star Trek and fashion Always go hand in hand Especially if Thysas has anything to do with it <laughs> Okay so No the film wasn't called Electric Boogaloo That's probably the next one uh, This one is called Wrath of Khan And it was released in 1982, so about five years before I was born, and uh, and it's pretty well regarded, isn't it? I mean, people like it. I don't know. You just made, me, fe- you just made me feel very old. <laughs> it's generally held up as the uh, standard for Trek films. I mean, yes, I guess you know thoughts vary. It's a solid movie. Yeah, uh, they've been trying to copy it. Popularity. They've been trying to copy it for the last five Star Trek films. So. That's probably true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, any time I hear anybody talking about any kind of Star Trek film, they always say it was almost as good or not as good or um, just as good as Wrath of Khan. It seems to be the benchmark. The problem is, I think Wrath of Khan has created that benchmark's a problem because they spend far too much time trying to copy the structure of that film 
there's a bad guy. They're trying to kill people. They must fight them to the end. Uh, and they recreate that ad nauseum. It's like every Star Trek movie does not have to be about fighting a bad guy. And revenge. That's not and revenge. revenge. Even Beyond was about revenge. Yeah. And lately it seems to be the big black death ship as well. Although that's not doesn't exist in this. Yeah, the one the one that didn't I wasn't about revenge. Um what we, what is it? Um actually f- number three wasn't uh revenge really, was it? Actually, I hate to say it, but three is actually my is my favourite original series movie. Ooh. Uh, no, you I like mentioned three. that before once, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although um, no, I think every Star Trek film from First Contact onwards has been about revenge. Oh yeah, it's Insurrection. Oh, oh yeah, okay, Insurrection. No. It's it's yeah. about the revenge of the children against the parents. Yeah, fair mm-hmm. enough. But it's still revenge. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At least First Contact flipped on it. It said and made. The, the vengeful one, the one of our main characters. The First Contact is my benchmark for uh, the Next Generation Onwards films. Yeah, I mean, I probably prefer First Contact to Wrath of Khan. you just <laughs> got to love the Borg. It's just fantastic. <laughs> um, but, you I, know, prefer I guess Rath it depends on which crew is your favourite, and I guess these days I'm more of a TNG guy, but... Yeah. So yeah, for me the the my favorite Star Trek film, as I mentioned on the fiftieth anniversary podcast, is Star Trek Six. Uh, I just think it's it's a much better showcase for all of the characters because I suppose it's designed to be. It's the last one, whereas this one is is very much the insular. It's very much a Kirk and Spock story. Everyone else is kind of hovering around that. Even McCoy is just kind of there to comment on things, and he's not he's not actually a huge part of the story itself. Yeah. Uh, that's a fair point, although I think Khan is the better script because of that focus, whereas Six is a bit... six. I don't think Six has that focus, and I think it suffers for it. But again, these things are subjective, and it really depends on what your preferences are. Yeah, I love the whodunit aspect in, in Six, so I think that's really well yeah, put together. Interestingly, because I can't stand that, because there's <laughs> too much sad humour and really poor detective work but you know <laughs> you know yeah. Six is not the only one that's been guilty of stuff like that so indeed two's far from perfect either yeah of course nothing is nothing's mm-hmm. perfect uh, Sandy where would you place this in relation to maybe the other original series films the, the next generation films can be a separate entity unto themselves yeah let's let's just dis- discount uh, anything f- uh, higher than six for the time being um, this would definitely be my number one spot with six coming up as number two Fair a enough. very very close number two yeah I mean I, I, I love both those two films the, uh, actually coming to think of it it's it's very. I say that, but then they've they've got number four, which I. I love as well. Uh, the humour in that is just. Great, uh, I think actually I would, I would have to say uh, two and six are a joint one, uh, first position, and four comes number two. That's. The others I, really couldn't care for. I would probably have to say, three is my favourite. Four and two are probably joint second, then motion picture, then I can take or leave the other two. Hmm. Interesting. Fair enough. 
Um, yeah, I'm not going to do a kind of ranking because I haven't really thought about it. But yeah, this is my second favourite of all the Star Trek movies. Also all the original series movies. And I'm I'm not going to bother bringing it, despite uh, ringing the spoiler alert because it's 35 years old. If you've not seen it, what are you doing? You know, well, um, I, I spoiled a ser- Serenity for one person uh, 10 years after it has been out by someone who really likes um, that that universe. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so, yeah, hit hit the hit, hit the spoiler alert. Okay. Cuz you never know. Let's go to yeah, let's not make the same mistake Kirk did and we'll uh, go to spoiler alert then. I mean, he went to red alert, you know, that whatever, the analogy almost works. Almost. Right, now we're free to talk about whatever we want for this 35-year-old film. Yep. Um, so, I guess we'll just start on story. I mean, it has one. Um, what are your thoughts on doing a film that's a sequel to a TV episode that, you know, your wider audience might not have seen? Uh, I thought it was an interesting idea. I mean, I think when I saw this film, I wasn't intimately aware of the original series at first. Same. So I was able to just go with the fact that, yeah, these people have met before and Khan hates Kirk for some reason. And I, I, yeah, that's it. That doesn't need to be any more than that, really. I agree. I don't think it was a problem at all. And I think there was enough um, explanation of that in the film. The script was solid. It was really well written. It was tight. It covered everything you needed to know. You didn't need to watch Space Seed to get this movie. It was all there. And the performances brought it out as well. So, no, I think it was, it was clever to go back to its roots because that's going to appeal to fans. But it was also written in a way that anybody could come in and watch this movie and enjoy it. Yeah, plus most of Cannes' beef is to do with stuff that happened after Space Seed anyway, so mm-hmm. Space Seed doesn't really help you with this film, other than it introduces the Cannes character, that's about it. Absolutely. I had no idea of Space Seed before, uh, before I watched this uh, film. Um, it's one of the first Trek films I remember actually watching. Uh, it's a long, long time ago now. Uh, I saw Space Seed, oh, it could have been at least ten years after I saw the film. And as Nick said, the, I didn't need to watch Space Seed to, in order to get the, get what was going on in the film. It's it's um, explained rather clearly. Okay, he has beef with uh, Kirk, um, and he's going to use everything at his means to get at Kirk. Yeah, and even then, the continuity doesn't even work because the first thing is they say that Chekhov. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't actually care. Like, it's it's fine, but. Um, see, the way I see that, uh, everybody, uh, I have a couple of couple of friends who poo-poo the film because of that. Uh, uh, and I'm like, have you ever ever thought for one moment that he could have been on the the the, the, the Enterprise? The Enterprise had 450 personnel. Chekhov may have been promoted into the helmsman position, been just uh, walking the decks. Um, uh, using the toilet part because <laughs> non-issue it's, yeah. it is a complete non-issue but people who poo-poo it because of this and point it out saying oh this is one of its biggest flaws I'm like it isn't necessarily a flaw it I can like Walter explained. Koenig's explanation anyway that Chekhov used the last of the toilet paper and <laughs> Khan was upset at him you know Yep, check off. <laughs> I think there's also a comic that explains he was part of the landing party that left them on City Alpha Five, but you know who really cares at this point? Yeah, who cares at this point? The films, <laughs> the film, uh, 
adequately uh, survives that potential error. It's also interesting, Nicholas Meyer says in the commentary that uh, as a justification for that, like he obviously doesn't care himself, but he talks about how Conan Doyle would write inconsistencies in his Sherlock Holmes stories. You know, like Watson would talk about a pain in his leg, pain in his arm, pain in his head, all that stuff. And he wasn't really, he wasn't bothered as long as his readers were still enthralled, which they so obviously were. So continuity doesn't matter as long as you're invested in, in this film, I most certainly am. Uh-huh. That's a fair point. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting anecdote from Meyer. He's like, I don't really care. Yeah, it's a it's a slight inconsistency, but well, at the end of the day, he's a filmmaker. He doesn't care. He just cares about making an interesting film, and and he does it well. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't a Star Trek fan, which seemed to be the key no. to making this succeed in a way, because he was able to look at the franchise from a lateral perspective and, and see it differently. And this film became the the design point for all the films that followed, essentially. Um, mm. yeah, not so much the that, TV yeah. stuff, but uh, but certainly the, the original series films all followed this mm-hmm. design template of all this kind of rustic, all-business, militaristic stuff. And, you know, it works. It's the most celebrated design aesthetic or one of the most celebrated design aesthetics of the of the franchise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of the way the story's told, I mean, um, what are the what are the thoughts on on how it kind of how it's paced and how it goes along and how it deals with its themes? Um, I think the problem is the problem with Wrath of Khan and discussing it. This there's not a huge amount to criticise because it's a very tight script. The themes are very clear. The performances are good. The direction's good. Certainly, it's not perfect. There's things you can criticise. Um, so if anything, I would have liked some of the stuff that was cut to stay in it. But it's a good film. It's a solid film. I mean, you can nitpick things like, why does Scotty come up to the bridge with Peter Preston, who's dying, instead of just taking him to sickbay? That makes no sense. But, you know, <laughs> that's that was for, you know, impact. It was for visual shock. storytelling I guess yeah the shock value mm. but it follows on from the previous line perfectly as well let's see how badly we've been hurt or mm-hmm. exactly hurt. Yeah. but and from an in-universe point of view it doesn't actually make any sense whatsoever so obviously mm. there's stuff you can criticise but it's nitpicky stuff yeah. overall it's a great movie it's a great script it's really difficult to really criticise it yeah and I think Part of our aim here is to talk about why, how much, why we like it so much. I mean, that's at the end of the day. I'm not looking for, I'm not looking for reasons to hate stuff anyway. You know, I'm, I think if I'm going to hate something, it's going to do a fine job of convincing me of that on its own without me bringing in any I baggage. The other thing it has going for it is it's clearly Shatner's best performance in years. Agreed. Yeah. Well, Nick Meyer pointed out how he had to do certain things to goad Shatner into performing well because yeah. um, there was that whole thing about the you know when the the prefix code scene uh, apparently when um, when he was delivering like here it comes he would do it in a kind of really hammy way that made it pretty obvious what he was up to but mm-hmm. uh, Meyer just did multiple takes until Shatner got bored and just mm-hmm. delivered it the way that it was supposed to be delivered so yeah, yeah. <laughs> but clever directing your actors you know Especially someone with as pronounced an ego as William Shatner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, the 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 effort paid off. It did indeed. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I really like the theme of ageing because obviously you can't pretend that the original series cast are getting any younger by this point. No. It's just, you know, it's just a fact. And the, and it's, I don't think the, it's ever explicitly mentioned in the film, well, it might be in the book that Kirk's about to celebrate his 50th birthday. I can't remember if it's in the book, actually. I have yeah. read the book, but I mean, it was years and years ago. Yeah. Um, interesting. He's certainly hitting an age that's mm. significant I mean, I, to him. I think, interestingly, it's not something they really followed through on in the later movies. In the later movies, they kind of ignored the whole ageing thing and went back to just treating them as if nothing's changed. Yeah. Um, Although this film's about him kind of reclaiming his youthful exuberance. Because mm-hmm. um, he's a bit stuffy at the start. He's a bit of a dick, to be mm-hmm. honest. He, but I'm, fi- I'm fine with him reclaiming his youthful exuberance, yeah. but it also kind of ignores the fact that he has gotten older after that. Yeah. Not so much in three. I think they still acknowledge that in three. But once you kind of get to Star Trek four, they kind of let it go a bit. And by the time you're in five, well, it's just like Kurt, he's like he's, you know, thirty four again. He's claiming just ignore the fact. I mean, we have Nichelle Nichols <laughs> doing fan dances. <laughs> it's like I'm sorry, Nichelle Nichols is not twenty five anymore. Yeah. And then I suppose six is about. The end. Well, it's, it's a film about endings, so it's you know they they have acknowledged their age and they're ready to throw in the towel and but so again, on. Again, they don't really acknowledge it that much. No. Well, they kind of do because uh, Scott Scott is talking about um, having just bought a boat. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I suppose you're right. Kirk, yeah, Kirk knows that um, they're they're coming to an end, and uh, okay, he kind of resists it. But if you've been if you've been in a position. Uh, all your life, you know, and you're now having to relinquish that position because, you, frankly, you're getting too old for it. You're going to be a little bit resistant. Actually, I suppose you've got a fair point. I mean, yeah, in hindsight, five really ignores it, but I suppose they do get back to it to a degree in six, which was probably Nick Mayer again. Mayer, Meyer? Meyer, Meyer I think. Meyer. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in two, they do start... To go go on with it. I mean, Kirk, uh, he, he's got that brilliant line, you know, galloping around the cosmos as a game for the young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then there's the he's wearing glasses. He uses glasses uh, in the in the prefix scene. Because mm-hmm. because he, he's allergic to some wonder eye healing drug. Retinox five. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Whatever that does. Well, I'd, I'd imagine. Well, I'd imagine it it helps your retinas uh, focus properly again. Yeah, uh, probably rejuvenates your lenses because it's your lens that gets the problem as you get older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't help Jordy, but helps. You know. Well, no. But then Jordy doesn't need reading glasses. No. no. Jordy's, eye, jo- jo- Jordy's eyes just weren't working. Period. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the glasses thing. I mean, that's a bit of an obvious. You know, you're getting older. Have a pair of glasses, and you know, and then there's a bit where he's kind of still hungover when he's on the the Enterprise. <laughs> you know, where yeah. McCoy says wonderful stuff that Romulan, and Kirk's just like shut up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's that kind of subtle aging stuff creeping in, but it's only it only really works with Kirk. It only factors in with Kirk. Mm-hmm. Spock is you know still a young man by this point, pretty much. In Vulcan terms, yeah. Yeah. He's like not even middle aged, so no, um, barely, barely out of his teens, really. Yeah, and the rest of the crew, well, they don't have that much to do. McCoy is, re- McCoy retired, 
before the motion picture, but for some reason he's still there. Well, he gets reactivated, and one assumes that he just decides, you know what, you know what, might as well just stick around. You guys are always getting into trouble, and you need me to get get you out of it. Yeah. In his they mind. stick around and and play in simulations for no reason. Stick around and argue with Spock more. Yeah. Um. And find pots of coffee. <laughs> but kind of get the. I mean, obviously the the Spock's death thing was. I mean, it was something that was coming from the start of the <coughs> film. Um, and they did that false death at the beginning to kind of put people off it. So it's like, all right, okay, there's that must be the rumor I heard. Then and then they can get on with the rest of the film. But I, I kind of feel like Savick, you know, Kirstie Alley Savick is kind of being groomed as the Spock replacement in case Leonard Nimoy was actually done with the franchise. Oh, well, he, he was for all intents and purposes done. Yeah, it was only it was only, he only agreed to do three because uh, they they allowed him to direct four. And three. to direct three. And three, mm. sorry, yeah. That's the only way, I think that's the only way they managed to get him to go, mm. to say yes. Yeah, but the, um... Yeah, and, and if he is done with it, the, or he was done with it at that point, maybe, but uh, I, I do feel like Savick is essentially, here's the new Spock, you know, throughout the film. It's, oh, uh, that was clearly the intent. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And she was good, I mean, I thought she blended into the... the the cast quite well. Uh, th- that way, you could you could also use the um, you could also view that line. You know, would you want a tranquilizer? Um, it could also it could also have a double meaning there. You know, you're, you're replacing one 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 uh, Vulcan with another. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's weird how they keep thinking, or because they almost did that before when the, it was going to be a TV series where they had. Was it Zon? Zon, yes, yeah. the, the the one who have, have essentially. Uh, 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 unfortunately, ended up dying in a transporter incident in no, motion picture. No, that was Sonak. That was Sonak. Was no, sorry, character. it was the same guy who was going to play Zon. No, this guy who was going to play Zon was the really? branch on the Epsilon Nine station. David Gutro. So he didn't yeah. play Commander Sonak. That was another actor. I'll have to. Um, I'll have to check. I'll have to ch- check where my uh, that reading material got that, that it's sourced from then. But no, David Gautreaux played Branch, who was the commander on Epsilon 9. But he did die in it, obviously. Yeah. yeah. He was preserved. He played Sonak, but it was a different actor. He was preserved in every detail. Yeah, but, you know, Kirk wanted a Vulcan, apparently, for some reason. But the, They go yeah, well on the shelf. <laughs> he needed an elf on the shelf. Oh, that's space racist. He's not real. So no, 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 none of this is real. Chekhov could have been on the Enterprise because he's not real. You'll still trigger someone with that. Yeah. That's the intention. There are people that identify as elf. Seriously. Well, that's a shame if they're on a shelf then. <laughs> Sorry, we don't want to categorise anybody. No, oh, that's funny. We don't. Like, in, and organise them on shelves. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yes. So, the, in terms of the story, so the, the kind of ageing theme goes throughout. Um, you know, it kind of weaves in and out of the, the revenge story. It's as in, Kirk is fighting his own decrepitness, I suppose. At the same time, he's fighting Khan, who's much sharper than he is, at least in the beginning. 
I don't think he's fighting his own decrepitness as such. He's just he's definitely fighting a ghost in the closet. That's one yeah. thing's for sure. I mean, he's got he's just learned of which Khan is also a ghost in the closet. Yeah, he's fighting his own past in two ways. Yeah, yeah, because you've got the his former um, love interest. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't know it at first, uh, but later on he fi- finds out he, it's he's also got a son. Well, I think he, the implication is he, he already knew. knew. Yeah, because the first he thing knew. he asks is, "Is that David?" Yes, yeah. yes, you're so, quite right. You are quite right. Yeah. The question is, is when is David born? I mean, he's probably not around during the original series, is he? He must have been. Yeah. Um, because the implication is that David's in his early twenties. Yes. Yeah. He's certainly been around long enough to get his PhD. Mm-hmm. And even if he was particularly smart. I can't imagine he got that much before his early 20s. And he's he could experienced be a enough to be working mm-hmm. on this project with his mother. So, you know, if you assume he was kind of 23 at the most, at the, at the youngest. Yeah. So that would put him, he must have been born pre, which is why I think a lot of people always assume Carol Marcus was a little blonde lab technician. But uh, Gary Mitchell pointed Kirk towards that Kirk almost married. That, yeah, but, there's no reason that she couldn't be. There's no reason that she couldn't have been. And I think um, I think there is some... Possibly they were doing a little bit of playing with that idea in Star Trek Into Darkness by introducing Carol Marcus. But again, that was a sh- movie that we don't talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Carol Marcus, who she, according to the reboot films, you know, it's like... She's gone and not no explained. Yeah, that was pretty bad. She should have been in Beyond, but hey ho. Well, the the question is: Is there a place for him Beyond? Probably not. You know. Probably not. She probably didn't have an ordinary, a, a natural place in there. So yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, um, there were enough characters in it already. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, the the Carol Marcus character is interesting actually because you've got this. Um, it's Nick Meyer often has said so many times that he wanted someone who's you know. He was obviously very strikingly beautiful, as well as being intelligent, because Kirk, Kirk wouldn't settle for anything less. You know, he would. She has to be his intellectual better in many ways, and that's what she is. You know, she's she's much more intelligent than he is. Obviously, mm-hmm. she's a genius, and you know, and she can clearly match wits with him. Absolutely. Although I think the film doesn't do enough with their relationship. Actually, it just kind of no, bubbles along in the background. That was kind of time constraints as much as yeah. anything. Yeah, they, they, there was enough uh, going on in the film as as is. Uh, they established that they had a re- they had a relationship, um, and just grew apart. And yeah. I don't think they had to do to expand on that anymore, really. Because I've I've had people that saw this film before they saw any of the original series and asked like, and when I mentioned that Khan had appeared before, and they asked if Carol Marcus had, because you could you, there could almost be an original series episode where she turns up. With based on her contribution here, because there's mm-hmm. that same amount of implied history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, I kind of feel like they almost could have used one of the characters from the original series and just recast them. Yeah, I mean, you get the likes of Ruth, who we see in Shore Leave, or um, oh god, what's her name from Deadly Years? I can't remember. Yeah, you know, so but you could have used a character from the original series, but you didn't have to. No. And besides, uh, that would then introduce um, a, a much younger um, son, or well, 
a much younger... Well, um, if you went with someone like Ruth, who certainly was a, an ex from before he was Captain Kirk, mm-hmm. you could easily say that, that... I mean, the implication that he was around 20 when he knew Ruth, or Academy era. So that would work. Yeah. But again, someone you know, it would, could be anybody. If you assume that... Pick. Sorry? Someone would nit, uh, nitpick and say, well, why it wasn't... Well, you know... It wasn't the child aspect mentioned in the episode as well. But then people nitpick anyway, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, if, if Carol Marcus was the little blonde lab technician, why did they not mention the child then, you know? I mean... Yes. They're, people yeah, are going to nitpick regardless. Yeah. Well, it, it could I'm sure be there's that. a novel somewhere that explains that it was Carol, but... Who no, knows? Other people didn't really know. I can't remember the the f- exact details, but did the, were the crew? I don't think the crew uh, were all that surprised, were they? But, well, no, they were surprised that David was his son. Spock knew. I can't remember. I think Maybe Spock was. may have known, but then Spock was his left hand man or and right hand mm-hmm. man at the same time. So McCoy's uh, going to have known as well. It's possible. He has no reason to tell Sulu, though. You know, for instance, uh, mm. or Scotty or anyone else. You know, like. Spock and McCoy are his friends, so they're about to know. Plus, there's that definite beat of familiarity when Carol beams aboard and she's like, Hello, Mr. Spock. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, so she clearly knows him, as she would. It's just one of those things. Eh? There's so much you can infer from the way the dialogue's delivered that, you know, the, you get so much of this relationship hinted at, which, which Again, I think quite lot, interesting. Yeah, a lot of it is down to our own assumptions about what we take away from that. And I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to inf- interpret that. Yeah, I think it, you know they obviously had an intent behind it, but I don't think there's anything wrong with you taking your own intent to that and taking your own ideas about that story away. Yeah, and I think that's the way it should be. Yeah, I'm just glad they don't sit down for twenty minutes and fill us in on the entire, you know, ins and outs. Well, of you know, if someone did a fan film like that, they would. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like there's a there's a book called Imzadi that's about Troy and Riker's relationship. Oh yes, bef- before they split up. But who cares? Like, you just I, yeah. I saw Actually, that. Imzadi is a time travel novel. Is it? And it's much more complex than that. Mm-hmm. Well, all I know from it is the blurb is it involves the Guardian of, forever. Right. I haven't but, read it in years, but it is actually a pretty good story. Hmm. But does it chronicle their relationship? Some of it, yes. Mm. But to be honest, I can't remember all the details. It's been like 20 years since I read it. Right, yeah. Fair enough. But um, but my point is, anyway, you know, you, you can... It's fun to speculate about these things. So as soon as someone comes and tells that story, it becomes less interesting. That's a very fair point. Yeah. I agree. But yeah, uh, Carol's quite interesting anyway. You know, you don't see much of her, and you never see her mm. again. She comes up, turns up in books and things like that. But uh, and I think everybody's kind of been left wanting to know more about her, which yeah. I think is is kind of your storyteller's job. Yeah, and she had a, she was supposed to have a bit in Star Trek Three, which made it into the book. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make it into the film. But it was, yeah. I think it was just her going around and telling family members that scientists had died. Mm-hmm. Um, which you I can't know, remember. Wouldn't have been that interesting to watch on screen, really. You know, I'm trying to remember having read. Because I read the books at the times they came out. Yeah. I can't recall. I I want to say there's a scene where Kirk tells her about David's death. And I can kind of picture it, but I don't know if I'm imagining it. 
because it's that long since I've read it. That would be in the fourth one, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, because in the third one he's kind of busy at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the Kirk's son stuff, I think that works pretty well because you know when they say there's a lot of, uh, they're they're a lot alike, and, and mm-hmm. David is very headstrong and impulsive, and oh, they're a lot alike. Yeah. Um, and. And, and and he's he resents him at first, which is quite interesting. I suppose mm-hmm. Kirk has been like an absentee father, but he was following Carol's wishes, mm-hmm. which is a bit weird. I mean, that's why you've never heard of him before. You know, like you don't see Kirk in the original series writing a letter to his son or whatever yeah. else. But, um, but you know, I thought it was a bit extreme when he said, uh, "There's a guy out there trying to kill me, and you show me a son who'd be happy to help him." I don't think he's that. Like, he hates him that much. Mm-hmm. But, um. But yeah, it's it's quite interesting, and obviously you get the payoff at the end where he's like, "Yeah, I'm kind of proud to be your son," and whatever else. Uh, I'm not it, sure what it, really triggers that, but I think um, the length he went to. I think more than anything, I, I suspect there was stuff they wanted to kind of they would have liked to have brought out there, but there probably wasn't time to address a lot of those things in the movies. In yeah. the movie, so a lot of it is kind of you're meant to assume that actually he's seen what his father's gone through and what he's done and that kind of thing and he's proud of what his father's done. Okay, maybe you're not the asshole I thought you were. Yeah. But again, I don't think they spend as much time on that as they perhaps needed to. Yeah. To bring that out more. I mean it's 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 pretty clear in the scene itself that that's the case, but it would have been nice to see a little bit more of that, I suppose. Well the the kind of Kirk's family stuff is a bit of a means to an end anyway. It's just to kind of show mm-hmm. him what he's lost over the years and, mm-hmm. and what his career has cost him as well. Um, and ultimately, that really does end up costing him his son. Yeah. Not until the next one, but yeah. No. Well, yeah, the son he never knew, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, yeah, Kirk obviously made a commitment to his career and the Enterprise, but not um, and when he had a family out there and he did, you know, that was a decision that he made, and mm-hmm. and that was a decision that Carol also made with him. I suppose it's like, well, you can do that, but I'm I'm going to raise our son the way that you know I want to. I suppose. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Kind of match, kind of uh, fits. It's also touched upon slightly in in six as well. Uh, no, in generations. Yeah, although he's pining after some other women. Yeah, that doesn't make that. that uh, I never understood that either. Although it could have been. Yeah, uh, I always thought that should have been Carol. Yeah, why yeah. not? Like, why isn't it? <laughs> Who the hell knows? Who's I mean, Antonia? Really? <laughs> I know. Why? Why? Um, I mean, I suppose the idea that maybe he and Carol would have got back together is possibly stretching things. But then maybe instead of it's like oh, some woman he met. Maybe it should have been him going back to when he was a lot younger yeah. and he and Carol separated and he ends up in David's life and David doesn't die and he has a very different life. That would have made more sense because surely that's that would be the biggest regret in Kirk's life that he lost his he wasn't part of his son's life and then his son died. Yeah. And surely the thought of going back and correcting that would be his biggest regret. So all of a sudden it's like Antonio that we've never met of heard of is like although it's been well documented that the ranch was Shatner's fantasy not Kirk's fantasy yeah well there's a shocker (laughs) (laughs) yeah no no Kirk would totally want to live on a ranch with horses 
absolutely. Use yeah. mine. <laughs> yeah, that'd be more Picard's fantasy than anyone else's. But Possibly. Yeah. No, I'd rather be in a, you know, excavating some dusky old yeah. ancient civilization. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to being in a Victorian house. House having a Christmas party. Like, what? Seriously? That somehow has a merry-go-round in it for some reason. Yeah, that was yeah. just stupid. But, you know, there's plenty of that for it. Anyway, that's not... That's a different podcast. Indeed. At some point, yeah. There are issues. Uh, yes. Very much so. So, in terms of... Uh, I mean, we've covered a bit of Kirk, and I think Spock kind of moves, runs parallel to him, even though he doesn't really have an arc as such in this film. His, you know, his arc is ultimately... Yeah, he's... He's fully formed and he doesn't change throughout the story, but that's that's what Spock often does. He's just kind of there. He's a fixed point. You know, everything else kind of revolves around him. And well, I think I think Spock's arc in this is fully, to be honest, fully embracing that humanity that he had. I mean, he has embraced it, yeah. but I think this goes that extra step, and he makes the ultimate sacrifice for his colleagues and his friends and his family. Um, that's a step of development. For, I mean, I suppose it's something we would have... When you see him do it in the original series, like something like Galileo 7, mm. he's this logical, um, cool, calculating... There was more to him than that. There were more layers than that. But essentially, that's the way he's presented. He, and you know his reasons? He's doing... He tr- he'll sacrifice himself in the original series because he cares about his friends, but also because it's his duty. Whereas in... Khan, that sacrifice is nothing to do with duty. It's a purely emotional decision to do that. Yeah, because he could have he could have ordered any number mm-hmm. of uh, texts to go in mm-hmm. there and do exactly what he did. Yeah. And I suppose there's the kind of the idea of the, I mean the Kobayashi Maru is a bit of a theme as well. You know, the kind of mm-hmm. everybody facing it's everybody facing death. Or, yeah, mm-hmm. because he you know it said early in the film you had the virtue of having never even tried. Because Spock was never interested in command, and mm-hmm. he had to at least sit it, I suppose, to take command, at least the the traditional way. But he was happy where he was. Well, you know, mm-hmm. happy and in very commas. He was uh, content where he was, I suppose, as more Vulcan. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, ultimately, it was you know when he's faced with the Kobayashi Maru, what does he do? He puts his, you know, he puts himself on the line to mm-hmm. to make sure everybody else gets out, which is, you know, the test of his character, and mm-hmm. he passes in that sense. Yeah, um, but throughout the rest of the film, he's kind of there. He he performs the same role he does in the original series. You know, he's the logical side of the the debate, uh, whereas McCoy is the emotional side, and then Kirk's in between. It's certainly, with the exception of Star Trek V, which I think is not a very good movie, it's probably the most original series their relationship is since the original series. But, I mean, to be fair, they've only had one movie at that point. Yeah. But they're much more like themselves than they certainly were in motion picture. Albeit yeah. older versions of themselves. Genuinely older versions of themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Genesis debate is that is a key scene for all three of those characters, you know, mm-hmm. McCoy included. And what you've got is you've got Spock sitting there saying, Here's a, you know, here are the implications of this thing. You know, and, and he outlines it in a very kind of scientific manner. And McCoy's like, are you crazy? Like, what's going on here? This, what does this even mean for, you know, from a whatever moral point of view? And Spock's mm-hmm. like, well, I'm not I'm not talking about that. I'm just... And, and Kirk's just sitting there listening. And he doesn't chime in until, until they're finished. Mm-hmm. You know, until he has all the data so he can say his piece. 
and that's the way he they always worked, which is yeah. you know, which is great that obviously Nick Meyer recognised that by watching a handful of oh, episodes. Yeah. yeah. Are you green blooded, inhuman, and then he doesn't get to finish that? And so much casual racism. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but that is the 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 Kirk and uh, uh, the the Spock and McCoy um, relationship, isn't it? Yeah, McCoy is um, somewhat always always somewhat annoyed by Spock's um, cold log- logic. Yeah, and. And it's the whole, you know, the the wrong hands, and he's like, "Who's are who's are the right hands?" And it's these interesting debate points that they just kind of cycle through because, you know, Spock isn't interested in having the debate; he's just there to kind of give you the headlines. Mm-hmm. And and I guess it's because it's not something they're they're thinking about because they just need to know what Genesis is because Carol was talking about it on a garbled transmission, which then is strangely replaced. Uh, in four, uh, with um, Kirk's uh, face. Yeah, he made his. Well, his Probably was the report. They, so they didn't have to pay the actress again. Yeah, so I think it's as it's as simple as that, and, I, and that's probably why she, why also Carol Marcus wasn't um, mentioned in Generations either, just in case there was still some sort of residual thing that they would have had to pay. Yeah, they would have to pay Nicholas Meyer, who created the character. They would have had yes. to pay Nicholas Meyer. They, yeah. That 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 that, looks, that explains who Antonia is, then. <laughs> that's why you get um, that's why you get Nicholas Tom Paris instead of Nicholas Locarno. In yeah, well, exactly. it's different in a movie as opposed to a TV yeah. show. A TV show, you'd have to pay for every instance. Yeah. In a movie, the movie's kind of a one-off, so it's not such a big issue. So they could have done. I mean, to be fair, I mean, let's face it, they reused Savic on three occasions. Yeah, with two different actresses. And they were going to use Savick in Six. The only yeah. reason they didn't is because Rodney didn't want them to use Savick in that way. Yeah, and I, I agree with that, I think. Um, I do yeah. agree with it. Yeah. Having said that, at the end of the day, Savick was Nick Mayer's character. Yeah. If he wanted to do that with his character, you know, yeah. they probably should have let him. Yeah. Well, although I wouldn't she- want to see that myself. But I don't think it would have been the wrong choice to do. Although thinking about it now, it would have been a bit of a surprise for the audience, I suppose. Oh, we wouldn't have expected that of her. She was so regulation and so um, green that I don't think it would. Uh, it, 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 I think it would be a slightly out of character, actually. I don't. I'm but it would be a nice turn up. It would sure be a nice. That is. I think it, people that are very rule bound are sometimes the ones that are taken in by these things. It's well, the Star Trek Six is like fifteen years later, anyway, isn't it? I mean, and you know, yeah, she could true, easily change in that. You don't know what's happened to her in that yeah. time. It actually so, would have been made for a better, um, a better uh, reveal, a better surprise. And having, for Spock, having, a, better, a bigger betrayal, really. Yes, because apparently, if 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 we listen to um, if we listen to the the hearsay um, in number four, apparently she was pregnant with uh, Spock's child. Well, that that is, if I remember rightly, in the novelization. Yeah, which were based on earlier versions of scripts. So which is why she stayed on Vulcan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, although it's not explicitly stated, which means they don't have to bring it up ever again. No. No, she just stays on Vulcan for some reason. But if if it were mentioned, uh, for example, and then she betrays uh, Spock and mm-hmm. uh, and crew. 
uh, in six, then it would it would just have a, a, even more impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But what we got was what we got. Indeed, um, still a good film. Yeah, and Savik as a character. Um, I mean, you don't find out an awful lot about her in this film, other than she's a student that Spock has some interest in. Mm-hmm. You know, the, she's she's a, a Vulcan. She's a gifted student. She's in Starfleet. You know, which I think is seen as a bit of a rarity at this point. I wonder still. if he. I wonder well, if she was supposed to be her. half Romulan at that point. Yeah, that was. Um, yeah, that that was in the novelisation. Dialogue well. that was recorded, but it was all cut. Yeah, rape gangs and stuff. She had a rough upbringing, that kind of stuff. Is it possible that um, he also sponsored her entry into Starfleet? Well, I think that's likely. Yeah, I mean, about, the implication was that Spock was sort of a guardian to her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or she she may simply have just been uh, speak um, uh, looking up to him as the only other Vulcan in Starfleet that we knew of at that well, time. I mean, yes, yes, we know about that. There was a lot of back behind the scenes chatter about the fact that she was half Romulan, mm. about the fact that Spock had been some kind of mentor to her. Um, and certainly, I mean, there's novels out there that, and I don't know how much of this is based on background, but of the fact that she was brought up on a rough planet and Spock was the one that rescued her and kind of sponsored her and things like that. Well, the mentor thing is clear. That That much is obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's very clear that, that Spock has an interest in her more than he has other cadets because he interacts with her. Yeah, absolutely. And there is there is actual film dialogue acknowledging that she's half Romulan. It was never used. Um, I'm pretty there's there's a cut scene out there somewhere that actually states it. Hmm. Yeah, but it ain't in the film. That'd be so, interesting. You know. It ain't on the film. No. <laughs> yeah. So therefore, non-canon. In, in mm-hmm. that respect, but you know, and for the purposes of this film, she's a Vulcan. You know, that's oh, yeah, that's what absolutely. she is. But there, there is that, there is that hint of an, a bit of extra passion. She's very kind of forthright, and you know, and and there's parts where emotion does creep through. Um, she seems sort well, of. Thing. I mean, Vulcans are not without emotion. Yeah, because she um, seems sort of timid compare, at one point. If you compare it to young Spock in the cage, that's not, which is in some ways that's all retconned, but you could say that that's not unusual for a young Vulcan. Yeah. To be a bit more passionate, a bit more fiery. Yeah, and she's still finding herself and mm-hmm. um, and she's, I mean, she's not really a cadet, she's a lieutenant, which mm-hmm. suggests that she's done some leapfrogging. Yeah, that's all a bit vague and unclear, yeah. really, isn't it? It, it, it could be that um, she was um, in the sciences department or something like that, and has is making the conversion to command. Hence why she's do- doing the Kobayashi Maru test. Yeah, and, and sitting at the helm on a... or sitting at a station during a training cruise and stuff. Yeah, that would make... it would make uh, all the sense in the world, then, if she's doing a conversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And that's why she knows so much, so much uh, about the regulations as well. Yeah. Because fresh cadets don't always, even after two or three years, don't always know... All uh, the regulations. Well, or in Kirk's not. case, never. <laughs> on Kirk's case, never. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've, my favorite. I mean, my favorite bit of dialogue involving Savik is the bit where Spock says, "Have you ever piloted a ship out of space dock?" And, and she's like, "No." And it's like, "Well, you're not getting to here," because <laughs> she just tells someone else to, which is you know, yeah, not I, the same thing. That, it's just like in Next Generation when, have you ever manually docked the saucer number one? 
Oh, there you go. Now you're doing it. Okay. Yeah. Helmsman, Dr. Sosa. What the fuck? <laughs> Seriously? It's like, oh, I got, doing tell, nothing. I got to tell someone to fire maneuvering thrusters. What a privilege. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. For everything, there is a first time. <laughs> Indeed. God, so stupid. But I don't know. It's also the fact they keep calling her Mister. Well, that's just naval parlance, really. Yeah. <laughs> that annoys me, though. Gender is irrelevant in the military. True. In the twenty-third century. And, and it's relevant tw- again in the twenty-fourth century when Janeway doesn't like being called Sir. Yeah. Captain, she can do what she wants. Yeah. Ma- but Mam will do in the crunch. Yeah, or whenever they can be bothered. Yeah. So there's nothing really to say about the rest of the the bridge crew. Sulu doesn't have anything to do. He says a couple of things. Uh, Ahura yeah. answers the phone like she always did. <laughs> Not much new there. Yeah. Chekhov. Check um, Chekhov just gets uh, threatened. Yeah. Chekhov oh, yeah. probably has the most to do of any of the supporting actually, characters, yeah, he, actually. He, get, he gets that, uh, that um, thing in his ear, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's also, like, he also has quite a bit of meaningful dialogue when, you know, when he's just on the bridge of the Reliant and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, which seems to be a bit, of a, a bit of a halfway house for former Enterprise crewmen, because you've got Kyle as well. That's true. Finally out of the transporter room. Yeah. Um, Janice Rand isn't there, but she's on space dock. For some reason, yeah. Waiting for Excelsior to launch, whenever that'll happen. Indeed. This is the first time you ever see another class of Starfleet ship, isn't it? I guess. You you don't ever see... Because any time you see anything in the original series, it's, you know, another Constitution class. Yeah, it's it's always the Enterprise... um, model kit with uh, yeah. different lettering on it. Yeah. Yeah. If they bothered with a different lettering, which, you know. Yeah. Sometimes The they Ultimate Computer, know. they did some split screening where they just had four versions of it on the screen. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or either that, it was just a rotating ball of light. Yeah. Or anything, whatever, you know. Uh, yeah, that's actually quite true. I mean, okay, in Space Seed, it's not exactly a... Uh, uh, a Starfleet ship, but it's, it is a different uh, design of um, human ship at the very least. Yeah, it's an old Earth ship, yeah. Exactly. But no, you're quite right. This is the first time that we see something uh, on screen, anyway, that is yes. noticeably a completely different configuration. Yeah, and it's just a spare part that they had for the saucer with some nacelles stuck on it, pretty much. Sometimes, the, if you keep it simple... It's fine. It's you know, it's a fair enough design. I think um, I mean, it, it's 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 it, in itself. It started off a whole new uh, argument about where is the navigational deflector then, <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, had people wondering. Well, I think back then people didn't really know what the navigational deflector really was, so no. yeah, they hadn't really decided that that was part of you, what its function was. It was more. It was, a, it was a sensor dish. Yeah. Hmm. It was more the next generation that um, established its key role mm-hmm. in the um, in space flight. Let's modify it because we, we can't have it ever do its intended thing. We'll just keep modifying it to suit the situation. 
Yeah, it's done. It's done everything, hasn't yeah, it? Really, does anything? Yeah, whatever plot you need solved, the navigational deflector will be involved. It is a plot device. That's in, that is for sure. <laughs> in some way or another. Um, yeah, whatever. But uh, yeah, the Reliant. Um, pretty simple design, but it's pretty effective. You know, the fact is it looks different enough. So when they're they're fighting, you know which one of them, which one's which. That's primarily the reason why they did it. Yes. Yeah. Because they could have just mocked up another model of the Enterprise, but. Uh, but there's then, also the implication that it can be run by a few people. In, as it is. If I remember in the novelization, it's not what you see in the novelization is not what's the implication in the novelization is that it's an old original series Constitution class ship. Really? I don't mm-hmm. remember the novelization well enough. It's certainly it's an old rust bucket. Yeah. And I may be misremembering an implication that's an, an TOS era constitution, but it's certainly implied that it's a much older, beaten down ship. Uh-huh. It, I mean, we, we know the constitution class goes through a refit in its life, so it's mm-hmm. quite possible that the Miranda class actually had the, those styling cues first, and then they went, well, those, those nacelles look, work really well with that class. Let's, let's tr- test it on the. Um, on the Constitution, see what it, how how it works, because we know that there was um, the Enterprise was more or less a the, the test bed, or was it? Um, it was because they was. some people call the refit the the Enterprise class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, it, it, oh, that that kind of tracks. If you kind of squint your eyes a little, it's a newer ship than the Enterprise, though, definitely because of the registration number. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. Although the Enterprise might be newer in terms of because it had the refit later, but indeed. Uh, but then this the Enterprise in this film is just a training ship, anyways. Yeah, the Enterprise has been um, retired from active service for yeah. all intents and purposes. Because when you go to when you when you're a training ship, then that's generally uh, for naval vessels. That's end of life. Yeah, you know, and that explains why all the tech looks so crappy. You know, the giant communicators and things. Yeah, it's just old stuff that they were use, they're using to train people with. It's that, again, yeah, that's true to life as well. Uh, yeah. the, the training, uh, the training ships and everything don't always have best of kit. Yeah, they have whatever's not whatever's been replaced with newer kit from um, um, line craft. Yeah, and I mean, I, I do, I do like the reliant design. Actually, it's just so simple, and then you get you get variations of it later on. Um, Whatever the Saratoga was in, in it was, Space Nine. It was a Miranda, Miranda class. Uh, but it was a Soyuz class, wasn't it? That was um, in TNG, cause and effect. Yes, yeah. that's where they just basically got the, the Reliant model and added cannons and uh, bits <laughs> yeah. of, probably bits of, um, b- bits of either tank or uh, submarine models onto it. Spray go faster, paint. stripes. Spray-painted it, and there you <laughs> go, you've got another class of ship. Yeah. It kind of makes sense. I mean, if if uh, if 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 you got um, a stable um, space frame, you know, uh, and you only need you only need uh, certain aspects changed to make uh, to make uh, a certain class of ship uh, that can fulfil a different role, you just use the same space frame, yeah, and just uh, edit it slightly. Hmm. Look, I don't know if you ever played the game Star Trek Legacy. Is it Legacy on the PC? No, but I've heard of it. Yeah, um, 
the, you basically go through all the eras, and you get to the you know you get through the Enterprise era, and you get to the original series era, and you get the Enterprise, and then but you can also get other ships, and there's like twenty third century or old old school twenty third century style ships that look like the Reliant, except they've got you know slightly lighter coloring and and the um, the same kind in the cells as the Enterprise. So there's a suggestion that you know they they got refitted as well, maybe, but. Um, that's an idea that's been around for a long time. Yeah, I've, I've seen pretty people, much since as, as long as you know that movie's been out. Yeah, I've seen people who created three D models um, of a Miranda class with uh, TOS styling, you know, TOS uh, nacelles yeah. and TOS uh, everything really. And usually, what they do, they put put in a little uh, dish that's coming down from the the the, the center that centre uh, bulbous thing at the bottom of the saucer, generally yeah. known as a planetary sensor, and then they have this dish coming down and this awkward little spindly 90-degree arm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I just remember playing Legacy and getting that ship at some point. Um, and there's an Enterprise version of it as well, which, again, has the Enterprise styling, but it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. There's um, an Enterprise version of everything these days, yeah. right? Nothing can be left alone. It always no. has to be modified. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but obviously the Reliant exists because it's cheap. It's a reuse of the Enterprise bridge set with mm-hmm. different chairs and, and they've moved it around a little bit because, you know, it's just easy to do. You just redress the set and away you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is Co- common for Star Trek, you know. But... Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, and it's fine because it's a... It's a Starfleet bridge, you know, there's going to be a kind of design consistency because, yeah, it's fine. But it's also, um, and like I said, I think it, the implication is it can be run by, I can't remember how many cans people are still alive, but that many people. Well, if you're, if you're just going after, uh, going for vengeance, all you want is to make sure that you've got someone in, in engineering to keep the power going. Someone uh, in the weapons uh, pod to make sure that the, everything's um, loaded and ready to go, and then you've got your bridge crew, and that's it. You don't need any uh, yeah. anybody else. You don't care. You're going to run the. You essentially, you know, for want of a better description, you're going to run the ship into the ground. Yeah, isn't it a shame that uh, that Chekhov is going quite far in his career? He was a first officer, and then he just for the rest of his career he just sits like doing nothing on the Enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> That sucks. <laughs> yeah, poor guy. Yeah, Chekhov has always gotten the short, uh, the short straw. Yeah, Sulu gets his own command. What does Chekhov do? He gets to sometimes captain the Enterprise. Harassing them for it. Yeah. <laughs> I will be Captain Sulu. If anything, I would have. Pref- if. <laughs> oh my! I require a bigger ship. <laughs> Mine's bigger than yours. Oh dear. That's a big ship, not as big it's as our captain. <laughs> and ripped for his pleasure. <laughs> oh, I see dear. what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, in universe, it would have made more sense for Chekhov to be in command of the Excelsior. It certainly would have been, yeah. Based yeah. on what you actually hear people talk about. On but screen. Walter Koenig wasn't pushing for it. No, he didn't seem to care. There was a lot of speculation of Chekhov as Sulu's first officer, which yeah. would have actually been nice. Yeah, that would, that would have been really nice to see. Or Uhura, as soon as first officer would have been. Oh, yeah. Really yeah. But, you know, as we know, she was happy that her career was winding down. <laughs> yeah. According to Mr. Adventure. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so on to Khan, since we've on his, we've just come out of the ship as a villain. Um, Ricardo Montalban, what a guy, what a performer. This this film is just. I don't think anybody could have been um, Khan more than he could. No one well, could have done great. Khan more than him. My, yeah. my biggest objection there is, you know, considering he was cast in the sixties. Ah, we need someone to play an Indian uh, villain. Let's cast the Mexican guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and and obviously, you know, do you recast? Do you use the same actor? You're going to use the same actor. He was great in the role. You wouldn't use anybody else. But at the same time, it's kind of like oh, they could they could really have result have addressed that when they cast Khan for Into Darkness. The fact that instead of actually addressing that, they cast a white guy. Come on. Yeah. A pasty like, white guy as well. Just, just, just cast somebody from that part of the world. Yeah. What's the problem? Yeah. But no. Not as well known. Yeah. Yeah. That's but okay. Yeah, he was great. It would have been nice if there'd been someone who was ethnically appropriate. Yes. But, you know, it was a thing of the time. Yeah. Although they don't As mention is, where he's from anyway in Wrath of Khan anyway. They don't, but I mean, you know, let's be fair, they used that he was he was being it was very much implied, and if you look at kind of the picture that MacGyver's painted of him, it was very much implied that he was some kind of um you know, from that kind of world with the that kind of part of the world with the turban and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's not stated, but it's strongly implied and I can kind of understand why in Into Darkness they didn't want to cast somebody. It's like, oh, let's cast somebody from, you know, India as a terrorist. I can kind of understand why they didn't want to do that. But at the same time, uh, do we have to whitewash this guy? Well, I mean, in in this particular film, I know in the original episode they... They strongly hint at where he's from, but in this film they don't. They don't. No, it's just um, not meant. It's not meant. Yeah. I think that was that was probably a sensible move, and I suspect maybe he wasn't. But I suspect Maya probably had this thought: like we're casting a Mexican guy as an Indian. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we should kind of like step back from that a bit. So maybe that was intentional. I don't know. They certainly yeah. didn't darken his skin up. No, um, or his hair. You know. So, you know, maybe there's an intentional effort to kind of step away from that. I don't know. Yeah. Either way, you know, it, well, it's a criticism, I... but Montalban was brilliant in the role. He was great. Yeah. So all, many all standout scenes. It's well done, well done for actually getting Montalban back. Oh, he was of, great. Instead of going the cheap uh, route and recasting with someone else, which they mm. could have easily have done. They could have. And he was working on Fantasy Island at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, which, uh, as Meyer has said on several occasions, that wasn't challenging him, whereas this kind of did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my my one my one comp- big complaint about this movie, and it and it's you know it's the way it's structured, and it works, but I wish we'd actually seen a f- confrontation between Kirk and Khan, other than in you know over the phone mm, <laughs> or well, over um, Skype, you know. Did I read? Did I read? I'm sure I read somewhere. Um, Shatner and Montalban never actually ever met one I don't another think they did, on, no. the, on the set. Yeah. Their, their their parts were filmed at, at completely different times. Yeah. yeah, and it would have been nice if they had. But nice. I suppose I don't know. It, you don't I'm not miss sure. it. Though. 
I would have liked to have seen it, but I'm not yeah. sure it would add anything to it. Mm. I think in, there was a version of the script where they, you know, they had a fist fight on the Genesis planet and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, which I, that rings a bell, and I'm yeah. not. That's not what I would want to have seen. I didn't no. want to see a fight between them. I want to see some physical face-to-face kind of performance between the two of them yeah. you know see both of them chewing up the scenery and which they kind of do anyway but it would have been nice to just see them in the same room doing it even even just a nice you know in, they're in the same room negotiating uh, kirk's surrender and the handing over of um genesis information and then it would have been much then kirk wouldn't have been able to hide his uh, real intent in the sit in the moment it yeah. would have been much harder for him to do that. Um, mm-hmm. It would it would have been interesting to see how they got around that. Then it would have been. Mm-hmm. I agree. It would have been nice to actually have a nice physical interaction between the two. But uh, I yeah. understand why it didn't happen. I understand why it didn't happen, and I think it works fine without having it. Yeah. And I'm not like I say. I'm not sure from a story point of view we would have gained anything. It's no, just from a fan geeky nerdy. I'd like to have seen them in the same room together. <laughs> yeah. Being yeah. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you know, it's one of those things that until someone brings it up, you don't, you might not realise that. Oh yeah, they're not in the same room together. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he, the only really, yeah, he only really shares scenes with um, Chekhov and Tyrell, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously his other augment people, one of which might or may or may not be his son. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about Khan is Khan has changed a great deal since the original series, because in the original series it was, he was this cold calculating, clever, mostly clear-thinking, you know, dictator. Whereas in Khan, in, in Wrath of Khan, he's he's not insane, but he's this bitter, revenge-driven guy. Completely different motivations. Well, it kind well, it kind of tracks, though, because as we oh, know... Oh, yeah, absolutely. As we know... Um, the defect, uh, if you want, to, for want of a better description, of the um, the genetically engineered is that they were predisposed to anger and and retribution and whatnot, which yeah. is why we had the eugenics war. Um, so, in Space Seed, he just wanted to get control of the ship to do his own thing. Mm-hmm. Kirk, however, stops that and maroons him on a, on a planet, and his wife dies on that. So, obviously, his his motivations change from from what they were to now. I want to see. I want Kirk's head on a platter. And, and it is all kind of. Can. And it is all kind of Kirk's fault. Well, not directly, but Starfleet forget about them. You know, they yes. um, they don't check up on them. The planet blows up and no one notices. You know, which, and, uh, by the way, were utter incompetence. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's one thing. The story that really does bug me. It's yeah. like, so the crew of the Reliant, who are these highly trained Starfleet officers, and a ship full of scientists, go to study this planet. Surely they know where this planet that they're looking for orbits and go, hmm, this planet's in completely the wrong orbit. That's strange. Yeah, yeah also, the, we're approaching the City Alpha system. So you say there's six where planets. Where did this here. asteroid belt one, come from? Yeah. One, two, three, four, I know. five. Yeah. It, it, that, that's, that's a problem I have with the script, and I've always <laughs> had with that script. Yeah. It, again, it's a nitpick, but it's an issue. Yeah. And I've seen a sort of re-edited, you know, like almost how it should have ended kind of thing. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, where like uh, 
you know, you hear like City Alpha Five, and then you hear Chekhov's "Oh no!" and then the ride just flies off, and that's yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll look somewhere else. <laughs> that's funny. That's yeah. funny. I suppose it could it could uh, be uh, explained a little bit as uh, well. It just shows you that Starfleet isn't compl- entirely infallible. But then this is this this is a problem I often have with it because. And I find Maya does this more so in six than he does in two, but he's got this slight tendency to make the Starfleet officers look incompetent, either to get a laugh or to advance his plot. And it's not just Maya; you see it in, you know, in TNG and other shows as well. But it's like you have these professionals there. We're going to make them look incompetent to advance the plot. That's not a good choice from a storytelling point of view. No. Well, every time an admiral or someone turns up in the original series or Next Generation, they're normally... They're insane. Yeah. yeah. Um, or they're an asshole. Yeah. Or it's, both. Yeah. Well, then, and then you've got people inexplic- inexplicably unable to do their job all of a sudden. Um, yeah. Um, like, the, for- the Forge on in Generations. Yeah. In any in any episode, he would have rotated the shield frequency. He would have spot. He would have figured out in seconds. Oh, hang on, they're breaching through our shields. Do do do. Right, okay, I've rotated to the frequency. Oh, look, they're now they're now not getting through. I'm now just going to look at this panel. Stuff like that, I can let slide because actually, you can assume that there was more going on there than actually they could be bothered to explain. Yeah, but that could have been better done. But the stuff that lets us do that is kind of geeky techno babbly stuff. Once you start getting to geeky techno babbly stuff, Fansplaining. you kind of start losing your kind of. You kind of start being able to stop being able to argue too much about plots. It's like this stuff means nothing. It's nonsense. Yeah. But something like space explorers go to a planet they've been to before, and oh, there's a planet missing here. <laughs> no, that must be the planet we're going to because that's the Atomus planet. That makes no sense. It's in, in Star Trek Six where. Savic has to explain to sorry, Savic Valeris has to explain to Chekhov, the chief of security, <laughs> how the how the security systems on the ship work. I'm sorry, that's stupid. Yeah. yeah. What should have happened is Chekhov explains to some junior dimwit that doesn't know. Now clearly that was there to inform the audience. That's fine as far as it goes. You want to inform your audience. But it should have been someone who's an who wouldn't know this? Chekhov should know this. Why is why is he the dimwit? They should have they should have swapped the roles. It should have been um, yeah. Valerius asking. And then oh. things like the Uhura scene where she can't translate Klingon. Yeah. Since when? <laughs> I love him. And we're looking through all these old books because the Universal Translator is be recognised. Seriously, Since when the Universal Translator would be recognised? Fair enough. So why don't you get the computer to print out your translations on screen and you can read it out? <laughs> yeah. I also love the um, I love the pe- the payoff that Chekhov gets later when uh, McCoy's like, "I wonder why they weren't vaporized." And he's like, "It would set off the alarm, obviously." Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, something like that could have actually been just integrated into there anyway. Yeah, but yeah, the the five um, yeah, the f- five planets instead of six is definitely something it's, that should be noticed. Yeah, but and I like, mean that could have easily been addressed. Yeah, could have been. But I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how I mean, have, you could easily have addressed that from the point of view that maybe they found a way off the planet, the planet they were originally on is destroyed, and they've gone on to SETI Alpha 6. SETI yeah. Alpha 5 is now uninhabitable. Yeah, could be. Um, you know? or, or There's whatever. nothing to tell you that they didn't leave them enough there that with a bit of ingenuity they couldn't have found a way off the planet. Or maybe yeah. someone else had taken them off the planet. Yeah, could have been anything, really. Yeah. 
Um, put that aside anyway. I mean, it's, it's what yeah. it is. It's like, you know. It's a nitpick anyway. Yeah. So, the, but it's, it's quite funny when you look at Khan's collection of books, you know, with the, the glory of HD, you can pause and have a look, and it's like, you know, he has Paradise Lost twice. He has two <laughs> copies of Paradise Lost. Well, you know, maybe it was a special edition. Yeah. Moby Dick, <laughs> The Bible, King Lear, and Statute Regulating and Commerce. It's no wonder he went insane. He had like, a, you know, three books, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a textbook, essentially. Drive me insane. Yeah, but um, yeah, they could have at least let him have an iPad with you know some Star Trek on it or something. Yeah, it's quite funny how he knows um, he knows Klingon proverbs and things despite being marooned for all eternity. Well, that's the well. Old, he did read the, the Enterprise database when he was a boarder. Yeah, true, and that's the only old... the books we saw. Then they, they, they may they were obviously. A few more rooms in the in the uh, crashed and, ship. You know, maybe he'd had maybe he'd read up on um, when he was on the Reliant. Yeah. Or likely thing is, Khan would have had a look when Khan was originally aboard the Enterprise. He would have read up on what the state of the galaxy was. So he probably knew who the Klingons were, and he'd probably yeah. done some reading on. Them. So I, you know, I can, I can let that ride. That old Klingon proverb. That's an even older human proverb. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> that was kind of stupid, really, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. It's like, yeah, I, that that is pretty stupid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he's but, human, and he's and for sake, he's human. Why would he call that a Klingon proverb? Yeah, yeah. It was an old yeah. proverb. It's like the old Revenge Vulcan. This best serve called. Oh yeah, the Klingons say that as well. <laughs> it's like the old Vulcan proverb. You know, only Nixon can go to China. So. Well, that was just a really <laughs> bad joke. <laughs> yeah, um, but at least it was intended to be a joke. Yeah. Um, it might have been Meyer making fun of himself for that Klingon proverb anecdote. Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps it was. But Khan, great villain, you know, up there with the best of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, writers, modern writers, have got it in their head that he is essentially Kirk's Joker, which he is not. Yeah, no. He's a no. two-shot villain. Kirk doesn't That's have it. a Joker. No. This is the problem. No. If anything, it would be, I don't know, Kang or I, I, and I, 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 I would say he doesn't have one. No, he definitely doesn't. But he's not a superhero, so he doesn't no. need a supervillain, you know. But um, yeah, and and I really hate that they've just been trying to ape this film because any attempt to copy it hasn't understood what worked about this film and what works about yeah, this film I is agree. the characters and 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 everything that's behind the the revenge story. Um, the biggest problem they have is it's being done. Move on, do something yeah. fresh. But yeah, Montalban steals the show every time he's on oh, yeah. screen. Just his kind of delicious, you know, enthusiastic delivery of all these mm-hmm. these revenge-driven platitudes. Fantastic stuff. And that was his actual chest. Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. He was do- ripped. <laughs> I actually love the bit where uh, there's plenty of um, you know where he gives Kirk sixty seconds to find the Genesis information, and then all he does is complain for the next minute. Yeah, you know, he doesn't. Him. He just come on, Kirk, hurry up! <laughs> and I wonder what he's saying to his his uh, maybe not son. You know, when he turns yeah. around and has a chat, what are they talking about? <laughs> just keep nodding as if I'm still giving orders. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that is my favourite sequence in the film, actually. I mean, I love the, the submarine battle, but it's just the way that, you know, Kirk's like, I know how these ships work. And, and Spock's like, maybe he's changed that combination. He is quite intelligent, but then he's he's not that smart. 
no, he's driven by revenge at this point, and yeah. he's 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 a little on the um, lax side. He's yeah. Not to mention, he doesn't have the experience. He's not a naval warfare expert. He's not a space warfare expert. Which is he evident in the, uh, in the fight. The insight and experience to be able to put it in. He can put it together, but not with the experience, not the way someone who has actually done that and has the physical experience of it can put it together. Yeah, he's also not got the experience to build a more advanced ship than Starfleet has ever built. No. Yeah. When would he do that? But, well, exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, I also love the bit where, you know, when the shields are lowered and he, and he looks at the control panel and you see the kind of point of view shot of him, like, looking around, trying to look at what to press. Yeah. And it's that's really good, like, yeah. But that's this good, because, is... you know, so often on these things, oh, yeah, it goes, someone walks in and they can just do everything and they know yeah. where the controls are. He wouldn't. Yeah, you would have to think. Wait a minute, where would that be again? Yeah, what we're looking for, and especially when he's panicked and stressed, it's harder to do things. Yeah, you take longer to find the things you're looking for. Yeah, although the the enterprise or the Reliance prefix code is something that could easily be figured out by almost any computer in seconds. Yeah, but what is all that? <laughs> it's a uh, you know, I mean, you can crack passwords in seconds that are less complex than that. Or more to be complex fair, in that. 1982, we didn't have quite the same computer technology. To no, no. Just, just, of just, just or like, understanding of it. Just like you look at the next, uh, the the original series Bridge now, and it's been completely surpassed by uh, the uh, even uh, late older ships that we have today. You know, uh, Earthbound ships are far more technologically advanced than that. Yeah. So it's it's just what we envision in the future for for the future at the time. So, yeah. Um, besides, it's also it's also something about not boring the the audience with too much techno babble. Yeah. Uh, a nice a nice number being rattled off. You know, it's un- everybody can understand it. Yeah. The the point of that scene is that Kirk has the edge because he has the experience, he has the knowledge. Uh, he's you know he's learned he, he learns how his ship works. He knows his ship, whereas Khan just doesn't. Um, which is completely counter to the motion picture, where he knows he doesn't even know where the bridge is. You know. <laughs> well, there's there's obviously a few, a few years have, have passed since yeah. then. He probably thought, oh, maybe I should do some studying, learn how these things work. Mm. Uh, although yeah. I can understand his uh, how how um, how that would be. I recently visited a woods that I knew the back of my hand mm. when I used to live in the area, and they've changed it. And certain landmarks have been changed completely. You know, they've cut down trees and they've they've they, they've rerouted the fire breaks, which serve as uh, as as your paths. Just a little, not by much, but it was enough that when I came to a situ- came to a point, I'm like, I have no idea where I am. Did you bump your head in an overhanging branch and knock yourself out? No, because no. Um, I pay attention to that. <laughs> Scotty Scotty learned me good. Taught, taught me well. <laughs> Always look ahead. Don't look down at your feet. Yeah. I know this ship like the back of my clonk. <laughs> uh, I do like that, that, that bit. Oh, sorry, I, I like that bit. It's, it's, it's funny. It is, but it's dumb. It is, but it's dumb. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so I understand how Kirk didn't know, because they've refitted the ship. The, the, the Internally, it looks completely different. And he forced it, his way on as well. Yeah, and he also forced his way on, exactly. So, um, yeah, that's fine. And there's obviously some time... Has has uh, gone on since then. Um, uh, the, sh- the the ship has been retired from active service and is now a training ship. 
So yeah, yeah, he's 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 had time to um, to get used to the ship. Yeah. Um, and I mean that sequence is just is just really good. Um, it is. It is really really nice. It's like it's all oh, that. That's how he's going to cheat death again. Yeah. And there's um, there's all sorts of. It's weird because this ship, this film only has two major action. It only has two action sequences actually. This and the 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 naval battle at the end as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have that kind of horror movie esque bit that's almost a bit alien ish. You know, where they're wandering about on regular one. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a good scene, actually. Yeah. I mean, I love reading about the uh, the different fields that are studied on regular one. You know, geoplastics, gravitronics, thermonics, and synthostasis. Those all sound great. There's also, there's also rats. For some yeah, reason. I was about to say that. They also have rats. Now, either they were laboratory subjects or stored away in some cargo. Do you think they were testing Genesis on rats? That's about... <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Genesis is a bit of a weird thing because it is, you know, it's a really big deal, but it's kind of thrown in as well. It's just a little side thing that's going on. You could have almost had the plot without Genesis in it at all. You could. Yeah, almost. but then, then then there's no reason for uh, Spock to sacrifice himself. Well, could be they're because too close to Reliant. Wait, you wouldn't need Genesis for that. You could have any kind of big explosion or. Yeah. I suppose. Anything. Yeah, uh, there's but actually. Also... A... Continue, yeah. sorry. Yeah, go on. All right, um, there's a bit during regular one as well where I think Kirstie Alley might break character. It's a bit where Kirk punches the glass panel, and she jumps. Does she? I don't know. And yeah, yeah. It's like, I mean, I've noticed it before, but I was reminded of it when I rewatched it. Maybe, but yeah, he punches the panel, and she's like, <gasps> and it's it just seems weird. It seems like a weird reaction. Hmm. I'll have to go and watch that again at some point. <laughs> I hadn't noticed. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it's very strange. Although the um, the regular one bit is, I suppose, probably the slowest part of the film. Yes. Because you have some weird stuff going on there. You know, if, um, when they go down to the Genesis cave and it's like, look at this, and then they'd never mention it again, despite the never, fact you never mention where the sunlight's coming from. No. No, that's a weird one. Um, this matte painting thing, whereas, you know, it looks cheap, but they definitely didn't have money for that sort of thing. I don't know. It's fine, but it's it's just a bit weird. Again, the Genesis thing is just... There, there's more to it than they ever talk about, and it's never developed again, which is a shame, because there's potential to tell a story involving Genesis. Which is yeah, true. Very Which they true. do in books, actually, but, you know, those are books. They don't really care. I, I, I guess they, f- they just felt that they wanted to move on uh, on screen, uh, on the on-screen uh, v- variations of Trek. They just wanted to move on and not rehash that bit. It's been done. Yeah. But then they rehash other things. It's, yeah. Meh. Yeah, I'm glad they kind of left it and moved on. <laughs> yeah, um... I mean, is there anything else to, that people can say about the kind of regular one scenes? Uh, it's the most Kirk and Carol stuff because mm-hmm. they do have their their brief chat, and there's a bit where um, there's a bit where Savick uh, you know asks Kirk if she's if he's coming essentially, and and, and uh, he says to her, as your teacher, Mister Spog, is fond of saying, there are always possibilities, which I thought is a fun funny way to tell someone to bugger off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also it's got yeah. an extremely loud. Uh, 
transporter. What's up with that? Yeah, the Reliant's got an old transporter? No, it's the uh, the regular one transporter that's uh, very, very, very loud. It's an industrial tra- transporter? Yeah. It's loud enough that uh, they wouldn't have been able to escape without uh, Khan, uh, Khan hearing it. Well, he wasn't in on regular one at the time, so... Oh, right, when he was savaging them. Yes, they were yeah. the, the the people that got killed. They stayed behind and uh, distracted him while they they um, jumped chip. Good soundproofing. That's what it is. Yeah, fair enough. But it was very loud. I, th- yeah. I think it's unnecessarily loud. Although he hears Kirk's yell from space, so you know, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it echoes as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so talk a bit about the the end battle. The submarine battle in the, the nebula um, obviously it's it's quite iconic because it's it's just so simple it's two ships you know using old methods to find each other um, and groping around in a, in, in, in a nebula yeah yeah probably um, one of the, probably one of the best battles we've seen in Star Trek and certainly probably one of the more realistic yeah and there's some such a thing it's some great imagery as well, you know, the Enterprise rising above, relatively speaking, rising above the Reliant coming from behind them. Yep. Um, you know, it's kind of one of the first time we actually see them using tactics, and probably yeah. one of the last times we see them using tactics. I think it's also the first time we actually see manoeuvring. Mm-hmm. Because beforehand, and in the, uh, up until that point, all we had was a, a high shot from the left or right nacelle, where the, where the Enterprise just banked off screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I think this this and Star Trek Three are the only films where the weapons seem powerful. Yeah. You know, every time it every time it hits dealt in this film, you feel it. You know, um, it's it's impactful. But in Star Trek Three as well, they they disable the bird of prey with a couple of torpedoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, they're just they just keep hitting each other millions of times mm-hmm. until they you know. Until someone complains about the shields being at a certain level. Well, that's yeah, that, that, that's, that's the thing. In, in the Mutara Nebula, the shields weren't working. Yeah. So it was direct contact uh, on the hull. Yeah. So every shot could be lethal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, it adds a bit of weight to it. I mean, it's just when you think that, you know, when you watch some of the later battles, and you know, primarily in Voyager and the Next Generation films, particularly Nemesis, it's just. It's taking so much punishment, and all you're doing is hearing about shield the frequencies. Is they made shields too powerful. Yeah, and too powerful, was not powerful. powerful. Time too powerful for that kind of get through shields and yeah. not actually accomplishing com- much. They completely dispense with them in the Dominion War arc, though. Yeah, especially in the the the, the, the big fleet battles that we see in. Well, that was purely because episodes. they couldn't afford the effects to put them up on every ship. Yeah, so, so you, you see, sh- you see, uh, you see um, ships getting uh, torn in half uh, mm. with uh, one shot and stuff like that. Or it could true. just be that the Dominion weapons were that powerful. You know, it's that's true. Yeah, um, I'm I'm fine with that. I mean, even if you look at the Abrams films, the shields don't seem to be there either. Uh, they seem to forget about the shields when the the script requires it. Yeah. Well, and, that, and that's an e- that's an every that's an Every series and every uh, film, really, they f- they forget mm-hmm. about it, or they find a way around it. Well, I mean, I get really bored with the whole shields down to twenty eight percent. That means nothing. It's kind of tedious. Yeah, it's very tedious. It's just Overused. you know, all you're doing is reading out numbers. That's mm-hmm. it. 
uh, and showing visual effects and then that's it but um so it never feels like that anybody's in any immediate danger during space battles later on because it's just you know volley after volley after volley but in this it's you know every shot counts every shot hits and you know you feel the impact of it which mm-hmm. you know it's partially because there's no shields but you can achieve that even with shields you know i think yeah or screens as they called them in the original series uh, but I do love that sequence. It's just, yeah, the, the two-dimensional thinking revelation, you know, and Kirk's like, uh, let's use the Z-axis and goes down, again, relatively speaking, underneath mm-hmm. Reliant. And, uh, yeah, again, it shows Kirk's mastery as a tactician. And, of course, Chekhov man's a weapons console, which means he presses a button. Yeah, something to do. Yeah, Yay. presses that torpedo button, that crucial button. You were XO of the ship, now press this button and destroy it. <laughs> yeah. Or, I, you know. I, I do like the um, the the part where the nacelle comes off, because it's quite nice. It is it's quite good. Yeah, it's just, it's just well done. And, and uh, when the Enterprise is trying to limp away from the, the Reliant, that's tense as hell as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the, they're moving away slowly, and it's pretty clear they're not going to make it, and you've got Spock... Waving his hands over a plume of radiation. It's 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 very nicely put together. It's very tense. It's it's interesting, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And and it's one of those. Um, it's like Leonard Nimoy used to say when he watched Voyager. He got nothing out of it because again, it was just they would resolve a lot of things with technobabble. So what you'd have is we have this problem. Reroute this to this. We're fixed. Like there's no drama in that. But what you've got is you've got essentially Spock teching his way out of the problem, but. It's not about what he's doing, specifically what he's doing. It's about, you know, it's about the the overall picture of what he's doing. You know, he's in there putting himself in mortal danger. He's fixing something, but you don't really need to hear what he's fixing or how he's fixing it. No. Because no. it informs the drama. You know, it's he only has a few seconds to get this done. Uh, he has to go into lethal conditions to I, do I it. I think part of the problem here is fans have come to expect that kind of technical language. and yeah. That's what it is. Uh, it started being used more and more, uh, and it's just a trope now. It's just something that, that, that this is how it's done in Star Trek. You know, they find a, they find a, uh, uh, they, they find themselves in a situation and they think their way out of it. Yeah, by spewing nonsense and then pressing buttons. But and indeed, then... <laughs> because you can't they don't sacrifice do it a crew. So that's cool. Yeah. you can't sacrifice a crew member every single episode to get out of a situation. No. But you can think of other ways around it. I mean, they did in the original series. Mm. They were usually character-informed solutions. Of course, you could always have Kirk go inside and kick something. That helps. (laughs) And rip a shirt. Yeah. So anyway... (laughs) Moving on. But yeah, that's a really cool sequence. You know, it's just... um, It's almost this old-school kind of tension you don't get in films anymore. Mm -hmm. or, Or not very often, you know. It's this... You feel the urgency, and, and then there's plenty at stake. And, well, Nick May is a very old school filmmaker. Yeah, but yeah, I agree. I mean, it's very much informed by old war movies from the forties and fifties, and probably sixties. Yeah, that's a yeah, very good sequence, and it, it keeps you it. keeps on the edge of your uh, seat right yeah. up to them to the end. And it's visually amazing, you know, with the, the nebula effects, the, all the weird lights and, 
everything else, you know. Thunder. Yeah. The Matara Nebula uh, effect gets used multiple times in Next Generation and stuff. Most notably in the best of both worlds. It's the same, you know, they just impose the Enterprise D on it. Yeah, why not? Yeah. It's yeah, it's a free effect. Use it. Yeah. It's bought and paid for. Yeah. So anything else on any of the, the kind of action? I mean there isn't much of it. Um nah. which is good, you know. It's well it's well paced. The the score to it is absolutely fantastic. James Horner's score is incredible in the, in this film, you know, and it's funny, he was hired because he was cheap. He was young and cheap at the time. And obviously he, actually, he went on to do some of the biggest films you've ever seen. And yeah, he reused a lot of his scores over Yeah, he reused, but, you know. he reused a lot of his score, uh, particularly in Aliens. Yeah. Yeah, there's a very Wrath of Khan vibe in Aliens. Oh, definitely. To the score. Yeah. Um, and, and he reuses it throughout the Star Trek films as well, because he scores three as well, doesn't mm-hmm. he? And it's this, well, it's like Giacchino, he riffs on his own themes for... Although, although, although I must admit, the, the three score, just like the film, is a little bit on the slow side. Oh, I like the score for three. I mean, it's, it's nice. It's especially amazing during the Enterprise escape sequence. That's a good sequence. Yeah, yeah. So that is a very good sequence. And and the and the Enterprise coming uh, coming home sequence as yeah. well. You know, when everybody's standing up and looking at the, the, the damage... Yeah, you know, it's uh, obviously it's not normal there for Starfleet ships to 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 limp back in that kind of um, condition. Yeah, and the the, the music and the, the visuals just um, communicate that very well. But the indeed. it's still a little bit on the slow side. But other than that, yeah, but it's uh, a James, slower film though. Yeah, yeah. indeed, exactly. And uh, Horner um, adapted it, adapted his music to that perfectly. Yeah. And then you get what's his name in Star Trek Four with his cartoony score. It was pretty weird. Well, that was kind of appropriate for Star Trek yeah. Four, I guess. It's still yeah. a bit of a stupid score. It's, I would never turn it on and listen to it on its own. I love the chase music. <laughs> that is definitely that's like Looney Tunes cartoonish. It's that fantastic. Chase. It's great. Yeah, yeah. I'm with Craig on that one. <laughs> I like but it. But it kind of works. It works for the movie. It, it works for the movie. It certainly does, yeah. and. It, I like how the movie it's it doesn't take itself too seriously. Yeah, it was a nice little break from uh, all the de- <coughs> the death and uh, responsibility and mm-hmm. uh, whatnot from the f- from the, the previous two films. Yeah, we visited a lot of those spots in and around San Francisco when we were there last year. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I saw your picture of the what was the Cetacean Institute. Indeed, the yeah. Monterey Aquarium. Yeah, mm, an actual factual place. It's the same sign. Yeah. They just covered up the bit that said Monterey Bay Aquarium and put Cetacean <laughs> Institute over it. Uh, weird. I wonder why they just didn't use the real place. Well, because it's not actually in San Francisco. Oh, right. Whereas the implication in four is the, the aquarium's in San Francisco. It yeah. ain't. Monterey Bay Aquarium is like, oh, a 90-minute, two-hour drive from San Francisco. So yeah. that shot where you see the, see the whale tank... And San Francisco in the background. San Francisco's not in the background. No, it's also most likely the fact that um, uh, advertising. They didn't want to advertise it. They probably had to pay to actually uh, uh, use the place um, yeah. and, and use that section as a location. You'll pay pay a permit and whatnot, and pay the um, the the manager or whoever was in charge to uh, uh, in order to uh, film there. Hmm. Uh, you'll you'll find that sometimes places that just volunteer there. Uh, 
place, especially these days anyway, places that volunteer their premises, the name just remains intact. Hmm. Um, is it near Alameda though? That's the real question. No. No. <laughs> no, no, no Alameda's no. across the bay. Across the bay from literally across the bay. Yeah. I've been on that corner oh. as well, actually. Oh yeah, where they keep the nuclear vessels. <laughs> yeah, that nuclear vessel scene. I've been right on that spot. Well, well, that but, was an actual. That was an actual cop that was there, wasn't it? I don't. I'm not sure. There's I all sorts know. of conjecture about that scene because, like, I, I don't think that nobody knew we were filming at the time. It's like, well, someone would have probably recognised what we're out. They would have had a crew. Uh, I mean, they would have yeah. known they were filming. There would have been a big and, crew there. Yeah, and they would have had to um, get. They would have had to sign. Get people to sign contracts mm-hmm. because they were appearing in the film. You know, I think there's probably some. There's probably a little bit of truth in there, but it's like a little germ of truth. Yeah. But. Um, Either way, it's a yeah. funny, funny sequence. But yeah, um, Alameda is literally across the bridge. <laughs> yeah. So she's quite true when she says, I don't know about that. So I think it's across the bay in Alameda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we went well, to Alameda as well. You have and to. visited uh, a as you naval vessel in Alameda. Nice. But it wasn't the Enterprise. No. Neither was that one. Too. <laughs> no, it was the... No, it was, was the Ranger. Ranger, 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 that was it. Yeah, Ranger. Um, so, we've talked quite a little bit about the impact this has on the rest of the franchise. Is there any more either you can say about it? I mean, I, th- I think it's ex- extremely influential in what Star Trek would become, certainly in the films. Uh, Next Generation is almost a counter to this, because they move away from the militarism, but it, it, this certainly persists well, up until, well, up until generations, really. It, it definitely ha- had a lasting effect. I mean, look at the, the, the uniforms, for example, they're used... In every film up and uh, up until generations, and I several pu- episodes of the next generation. Exactly. So the, yeah. the the uniforms themselves. I think it's the most uh, f- in uh, when we limit ourselves to the films. It's the most used uniform. Yeah. Because in every film afterwards, they've got a different costume. And it's in service for about fifty years or something in, in, in mm. universe. Longer. Yeah. Seventy yeah, years, longer. maybe. Yeah. Um, I I I mean, I would argue that. In a lot of ways, Wrath of Khan was kind of like the evolution of, the sh- of Star Trek anyway. I mean, it yeah. really kind of, it was the first thing that kind of differed. It got what Star Trek was, but it also moved it on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And certainly the type of storytelling they do there very much influenced what would come after, as you've said. Um, almost too much, really, because they spend the next 20 years trying to ape Wrath of Khan in pretty much yeah. every movie. Well, the mayor even does it himself to an extent. Yeah, it gives the it gives the franchise a bit of a visual stamp as well. Like this is what Star Trek looks like in the movies. You know, the first uh, the motion picture was kind of trying to copy two thousand one in terms of design aesthetic in some ways, or certainly other sci fi movies of the time. Mm. You know, you had the you had the the white jumpsuits and the very kind of futuristic, well lit white hallways and stuff like that. And you know, it's pretty boring to look at, but it was kind of. At the time, that's like what the future looked like, wasn't it? Well, part of that as well was that the direct Robert Wise wanted the bland colours because he didn't want them to stand out. Yeah. It was to do with making the actors' faces stand out. I, I can't remember the exact quote. But he didn't want the costumes to be too dominant on the screen. Mm. Yeah. But the Wrath of Khan costumes, they have a they have a flap that can be opened or closed mm-hmm. depending on how much business Kirk means. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well that's more I mean certainly you want 
when you're talking about printing things up on a screen, you want more detailed costumes that have more interesting yeah. detail on them, yes. that are more complex looking, because um, it just translates better to the screen. Yeah. Meyer said he wanted pockets, but he lost that battle, apparently. Yeah. Because <laughs> he just wanted people to be standing with their hands in their pockets for some reason. <laughs> Well, you know, it would have been good if they put pockets on because uh, I've I've never agreed with the whole no pockets thing. But and you know, it's easy enough to put hidden pockets and things too. So yeah, people need to carry stuff. Yeah, I always thought that was a a flawed argument, but you <laughs> yeah. know, whatever. Yeah, eh, that's one thing Enterprise was good at. There was zip pockets everywhere. There were pockets, yeah, <laughs> but they Love were wearing Enterprise. they were wearing NASA jumpsuits essentially. So they were. Yeah. Well, it's it's a, it's a, in a less um, complicated time on in the Star Trek universe. Yeah. Less advanced. But yeah, it's it's a hugely impactful film, and I think to science fiction in general as well. I mean, um, it's still talked about to this day. It's still held up as a benchmark of of good science fiction, even though there's not really well the Genesis thing that's science fiction, but the rest of it not so much, other than the kind of mechanics of. Well, apart ship, from, apart know, from the spaceships and uh, yeah. beaming technology and yeah. whatnot, you know, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm kidding on here, obviously. Yeah, but you can you can almost take that as red because you're watching Star Trek. Those are the things that come with it, you know. But yeah, yeah, the story itself is not a sci-fi story. Yeah, there's not no, there's not too much out there. It's not too uh, hoi polloi. Um, yeah. it's it's a well-grounded um, story. He's yeah. been wronged, now he wants to exact revenge. Yeah, you could almost set it on a a naval ship in this time period and get yeah. a similar story. I'm Pretty fairly much. certain there have been similar stories anyway. I'm sure there's yeah. a film out there where a, 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 ship's, a ship's captain goes after uh, his his opposite number because he had his ship sunk from under him by that person. Yeah. He's going to get revenge. There's that TV show, The Last Ship, which has plenty of that kind of stuff in it. Mm. As far as I know, I only saw season one and got bored. But yeah, um, I don't watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I don't know. It's all right if you like that sort of thing. I suppose, Sandy, you might like it. Yeah, I've a lot of naval it. stuff in it. I have been watching it. Yes. Oh, you have been. Okay. Well, you haven't stopped watching it, so you must like. I haven't stopped watching it. Yeah, there you, are you a couple know. of episodes where you're like, <sighs> <laughs> but it's, it's Michael Bay's. Uh, fan wanking of the military, I suppose. <laughs> you know that that comes up a lot. Well, he gets access to uh, a destroyer. Yeah. Before. And the, the, actually, the U.S. U.S. Navy apparently have um, seen an influx in um, in rates of people uh, wanting to join. Of course, they have. Yeah. Apparently. Thank you, Michael Bay, for Transformers and recruitment and you know other stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, Naturally, something with this level of impact uh, close off on a bit of a lighter note with nitpicks and parodies. Mm-hmm. You know, is there any you can think of? A uh, family guy I've picked on this quite a few times. Family guy is the only one that springs to mind, to be honest. Yeah. Well, there's the um, yeah, there's the bit where Stuart's Ted, Stewie's teddy bear, mm-hmm. uh, his funeral, which is just the recreation of the Spock's yep, funeral yep. scene. And of course, the uh, the the Khan moment has been parodied m- many many times and yeah. in all sorts of different ways you know replacing the word can with something else but uh, using the same um inflection and whatnot it's, it's been used so many times yeah and futurama they're always picking on star trek and they've picked on this film a few times um namely in the the episode that had most of the original series cast when 
uh, Fry got asked, asked the question, who did uh, who'd Kirk Maroon on City Alpha 5? And Shatner yells the answer. Uh, so good. Go on about that one. Yeah. Um, try to think. Family Guy did another type of... What They've parodied this a few times. What hasn't Family Guy parodied? Yeah. Yeah, when did it stop becoming interesting? But, uh, how many times do you think the Orville are going to poke fun at this? Oh, every week, probably. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, they, they might actually make references to it in some way or another, you never know. Yeah. And I think it's almost been parodied in um, in the show itself. Specifically in, in A Mirror Darkly, I think... Um, I think Scott Bakula models his evil archer performance on Ricardo Montalban to some degree. You know, he's um, he's kind of rasping at the camera a lot and acting really yeah, insane. And, I don't know about that. And if you, if you hear his delivery of raise them when talking about the shields as well, it's very kind of Montalban-esque. I don't know. I'm more inclined to think that's coincidence than anything. Yeah, yeah I'd say that's a bit of a strange. I don't think Bakula's likely to uh, I could maybe but it's something that he'd need to be asked about but you know I certainly got that impression and there was the Augments episode of episodes of Enterprise where the I forget the the actor's name but Malik the lead Augment guy he was trying to he was Montauban light in the way he was acting well that would make sense yeah that would make sense yes he, he was trying to ape the line delivery but he wasn't very good so maybe he was just, just doing what he was directed to do yeah, maybe, but yeah, I, I've never seen this film before. Why, why are you making me break up my speech like this? You know, maybe. Yeah, but I don't know. Um, yeah, but it's it's probably had quite a few parodies that I, I can't even think of. I'll maybe look up some extras for the show notes, but nothing. Um, yeah, nothing. Nothing's really coming to mind right now. No. But the um, the funeral scene one's hilarious because it is just a a shot for shot remake, and uh, even like. Um, Seth MacFarlane as Stewie copies mm-hmm. Kirk's copies Shatner's delivery down yeah. to the you know down to the last detail down to the the, the, the quivering lip yeah although do you not think uh, Spock would be insulted by uh, Kirk's eulogy most likely you know. you'd probably say I, fi- I found that your eulogy most illogical yeah or offensive yeah <laughs> almost offensive yeah, yeah. I mean, as Scottish people, we should be insulted by the fact that Scotty can, of course, play the bagpipes. Why should we be insulted by that? All Scottish people can play the bagpipes, apparently. Oh. <laughs> I see where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I'm not terribly insulted by it. I'm just thinking, you know, it's, I'm just thinking out loud. But the the funeral scene it's just weird that you've got Scotty playing the bagpipes like why and, and an why Ameri- would it be a Vulcan funeral it's, a, it's with an American bagpipes? thing seriously yeah. it's an American thing well Americans think we all wear kilts and yeah the Americans all the, Amer- all the Americans think that they're Scottish yeah and they all wear kilts uh, at Dragon Con I did, when I first went there I decided hmm maybe I should take my kilt you know so I once had an American evenings. say to me um do you guys actually have Star Trek in Scotland oh <laughs> Like, yeah, we have television and electricity, thanks. No, no. for we live in caves. And, no, you know. I, I actually had one going. I says, well, uh, um, I'm, a, I'm away to go and hunt haggis. Yeah. You need only watch that episode of Next Generation to know how all Americans, not all Americans, but a lot of Americans see Scotland. Yeah. 
Yep. Oh, God. Yep, that's how a lot of them see us. Yeah. In fact, I'm pretty sure some of them think we're a third world country. (laughs) They're not far from the truth, to be honest. (laughs) Well, that's true. (laughs) But, you know. But we do have running water, and we... We have internet. We have internet, yes. Yes. We're on the internet right now. We are. In fact, we're actually more progressive with the the internet than we are in some places in America. Seriously. That's very true. we we take you go to any place around here, you know, any public place, and there'll be some sort of Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Over in America, not so much. There is well, none the Wi-Fi in. Sorry, there is none. There's no Wi-Fi in Disneyland, California. Wow. Um, no Wi-Fi. That's not actually a bad. Certainly idea. not when I was there. That's not a bad thing. Don't want them, they don't want you on the Wi-Fi. They want you on the rides. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's not a bad thing. I, when I was at Universal in, um, I know it's. it's Universal, but it's, it's, it, they'll have the same kind of idea. Um, mm. In Universal, I saw so many people with their faces in their phones, and the only time they took their faces out of the phones was when they were being told, "No, you can't have that in your hand on the ride. You need to store yeah. that, please." You know, I'm like, "What a waste!" So, yeah, turn the Wi-Fi off. Then they can't mm. have their faces in their phones. Well, they just use their data, but you know. Well, yeah, which is what I did. <laughs> <laughs> but the um, yeah, back back to the sort of. Funeral yeah. sequence because it is a big sequence. It's it like, is. Um, it's a big deal, but they, it is a weirdly structured funeral for a Vulcan. You know, you think it's everything about it is not what Spock's funerals are not for the would have people been. that are dead. Funerals yeah. are for the people that are left behind. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's just weird the that they leave his body on the planet. I mean, it's good that they did. Well, they don't leave his body on the planet. No, they expect it to burn up. I think exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But even then, you know, like obviously the. God knows what his wishes were. It certainly wasn't Sarek's wishes. Or maybe those were his wishes. Yeah. We don't know. It's never been expressed. It doesn't make much sense because you think, well, if he thinks he can transfer his Catra, then surely he... Let's face it, it was a tagged on It was tagged on at the end because they weren't expecting him to come back. Yeah. But we'll give ourselves an out just in case. A just in case, maybe. And when they wrote that scene, they didn't know what their out was. Hmm. True, yeah. Which, you know, remember, and then that was it. Um, yeah, and it, and it's one of those things that um, it's easy to kind of slip past because it just kind of happens, and then um, and then the rest of the film happens, and it's not brought up in the film. Mm-hmm. So it's just one of those, you know, McCoy isn't even starting to act like Spock yet. Mm-hmm. It could very well be that the um, they filmed that sequence, you know, the remember sequence, um, long after all the other sequences, and after. Um, Nimoy had already ag- agreed, okay, if, if I'm directing it, that's true. Yeah, I don't think that was the case. I think it was much later that they convinced Nimoy to come back. And I think, as if I recall, that scene was basically stuck in to give them an out if yeah. they thought of it, if if he did come back. But the, they certainly, at that point, didn't have any plan about how he was going to come back, if he would come back. So it was really just, we'll throw this in. And certainly, the scene where the bit that was actually no, the bit that was scripted, the bit that was thrown in at the end was the sh- the torpedo on the surface. Yeah. Yes. That was a let's just give ourselves an out just in case. They had no idea what they were going to do at that point. Yeah. So the any idea that McCoy should maybe be acting like Spock, it wouldn't be there because it wasn't on the radar at that point. It wasn't until later on when Nimoy said, "Okay, I'll come back if I direct." They then had to go and say, okay, what the hell are we going to do now? How do we write ourselves out of this corner? Much like with Best of Both Worlds, where they got to the end of the season and went, right, okay, now what do we do? 
Of course, all they had to do was beam Khan aboard and use some of his magic blood. Let's not go there. <laughs> Let's That's... not go there. I still want to see that. I mean, I'll never see it now, but that scene where young Spock talks to his older self and his older self is like, so how did you solve that can problem? And it's like, oh, it's fine. You know, Kirk died, but then we brought him back using uh, Khan's blood and then old Spock's just like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah. What <do> you, yeah. <laughs> you mean I didn't have to, like, age on a planet again? <laughs> yeah. Know. The less said about that, but the better. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. It's almost like, you could almost call Into Darkness a parody of this film, actually. No. I don't think Into Darkness has got that much in common, apart from one scene that is stolen well, from... Th- that scene is certainly a parody, because mm-hmm. it's, yeah. Because it's like, what is this? Why are you doing and this? Yeah, again, Khan's out for revenge, and we've ripped off a scene for parody. Yeah, and the scene li- wasn't intended to be parody, but it certainly plays like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, what are you doing? It's like, like, oh my god, that's terrible. Yeah, replace Kirk with Spock, job done. Yeah. 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 Um, but bet, yeah. Bet the fans this... won't see this coming. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> no, worked out in the first five minutes, but okay. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, so I think we've had a conversation about this film. Uh, I don't think we've covered anything that hasn't been covered in multiple other podcasts and other featurettes and other 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 things that, that talk about this film because you know everybody talks about it all the time uh, you know where they say somewhere in the world someone's watching Star Wars somewhere in the world someone is talking about Wrath of Khan at all times I, I would believe agree with that yeah so yeah there's a bit of Star Wars trivia you know I don't know if how true it is but it's fine uh, I always said it was somewhere in the world someone's watching Star Trek that yes. too, yeah. Or, I mean, you could well, there's, you can say that about any franchise now. I That's think. very true. Somewhere in the world, someone is watching a Marvel movie or TV show. Yeah, whatever. Indeed. But someone will be talking about this film as we speak that isn't us. So there we go. Quite possibly. Uh, yeah. So, is there any kind of final points on it uh, from anyone? You know, any kind of summation remarks? Yeah, um, we probably wouldn't. And I think this is fairly well acknowledged already, but we wouldn't have had any of the modern spin-offs that we've had without Wrath of Khan. Yeah, agreed. Um, if you know, if you know, motion nothing was spinning off of motion picture. Motion picture. I, I mean, I still think it's a solid movie, but it wasn't successful. It wasn't. You know, um, if we hadn't had Star Trek two, I don't think we would have had any other mo- Star Trek movies. We might have had a reboot of Star Trek in general around about now it probably would have been a franchise that was dead for 20 30 years <laughs> yeah. yeah um and then oh let's bring it, they probably would have battled star galactica did probably actually can you imagine that world yeah mm. yeah where you have the original series with some twists mm-hmm. and that's probably what we would have got yeah interesting well, no, i think you're right yeah i, th- I think rathacom breathed a uh breathed a whole a new breath of life into star trek and uh got the interest uh, in the genre back yeah I would agree um, obviously I wasn't around at the time but technically I was but yeah, wasn't aware of it but it's one of those films that you know it's, I mean I, I rewatch most of the Star Trek films even the crap ones but um, this one in particular is one that I'll just stick on for the hell of it because because it's great you know and um, it has it has a good 
cast of people performing well, performing very well, tight script, tight story, great visual effects that still hold up because model effects always will. You know, it's just because it's real stuff. You're looking at real stuff um, as opposed to CGI, which dates eventually, <laughs> even the good stuff. Uh, not that I'm ragging on CGI. I think CGI is a fine tool, but... Um, I've seen some model work that has aged. Yeah, well, like the original series, for instance, it's pretty dated model work now. But uh, but this, the the highly detailed models, which means they last a whole lot longer. Mm, they stand and they're also well lit, which helps make them look a bit stands more... Stands up to scrutiny more. Yeah. Of course, yeah. The only the only bit that stands out is... Well, this is more in Star Trek Three when you watch in HD and you can see the kind of... The, the blending bit where, uh, you know, the Enterprise is flying towards space dock and you see these lighter squares around the around the Enterprise. Uh, the travelling mat, yeah. Yeah, so if you watch that in HD, it stands out like a sore thumb. There's probably bits like that in this film, but I didn't notice it, actually, when I was re-watching it. And I've got the 50th anniversary edition with the director's edition, which has those three or four added scenes that should have been there anyway. Uh, but yeah, uh, I love this film. I'll keep going back to it. I wish they'd stop trying to make it again. Let's have the next Star Trek film, whatever it may be, not be about some idiot bent on revenge. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. It would be, yeah. I mean, even Kral was... He was motivated by revenge, but he wasn't that important. But, you know, everyone else has been, and it's boring. And, it's, you know, let's have people motivated by something else. Or no villains. Let's try without a villain for once. Uh, you know... No bad guys to punch. That'd be interesting. Maybe. <laughs> but but this had a bad guy that didn't get punched. So, whatever. Um, but great film. Great film. That's all I can really say about it. I mean, Absolutely. But, yeah. So, I think on that note, uh, I shall beam you back to where you belong. Hopefully. <laughs> so, if you'll just step into the transporter pad. Is that I don't trust you. Up? Yeah, well. It's either that or you don't go home. I'm you don't have to go home, but you can stay <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for joining. No problem. No problem. Yeah. And it's been a pleasure. Energizing. That was our occasional discussion of Wrath of Khan. As always, if you enjoyed what you heard here, then you can find us on iTunes, YouTube, or any major podcasting app. Hit that subscribe button, join us on the next Neil Before Pod, and, as always, live long and prosper.